Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Putting It Together. This is part two of our very special Stephen Sondheim special. Uh, today we're hearing from Peter Forbes, a good friend of mine and um, a terrific actor, and a very experienced one too, um, and he's also worked directly with Mr Sondheim not that long ago. So it was great to hear him talk about not just his love for the material, but also specifically exactly what happened, what it was like to actually work with them, uh, spend that time together. What did they talk about? What What is it like to be in a room with that man? Um, so I can't tell you how delighted I was that Peter agreed to talk to me. He was on the show, oh, many, many moons ago, way back when we started out, and he had, I think, just finished doing the first run of Follies. So he did briefly touch on some of this stuff. Um, but to get back into it, uh, in the light of sometimes passing, and also since then, he's gone back in and done another run of that same show. Um, it was just such a treat, such a treat to get stuck in. Now, it's, um, I think it's quite a long interview, this one, and also I am struggling with the jet lag at the moment, let me tell you. I'm just back from Toronto, um, and it's just taking me a wee bit of time to get back into it, but I'm straight into rehearsals for my Christmas show, which is on uh, in just under two weeks. So that's filling the days and then the nights I'm kind of a bit of a zombie and then I'm trying to go to bed early and then I wake up in the middle of the night, blah, blah, blah. Uh, which is all a way of saying I'm not going to stay on too long and talk to you in this introductory introductory part. I just want to let you have the interview. There's plenty of it to get your teeth into and I don't feel I have a great deal to add this week. Um, but yeah, I'm rehearsing the show and it's going really well. Gary McNair is the usual hero. Um, he's directing and, and of course, helping to straighten out the script and make sense of it and all those great things that you get when you get a good director as well. So we're getting there and um, we're having to do it over Zoom because of uh, me having been abroad, um, having to isolate for the next couple of days and waiting for a test result. You know the way. But that's fine. Where It's just it's quite tiring, isn't it, looking at that screen all the time? Um, it's, it's a different kind of tiring to being in the room. But anyway, we're doing it and it's getting done. And the show is in a couple of weeks. So, remember now to follow us on social media, Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and Putting It Together on Facebook. Just search Putting It Together if you're on Facebook. And if you can, please consider donating something to keep this project going. We are completely unfunded. We have been unfunded for four years, and we're still going, and we could use your help. We really could. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking... I've been meaning to give them a bit of money just to help them keep going. A couple of quid. I've been meaning to do it. Tell you what, why don't you do it today? Today's the day. Go to puttingittogethercast.com and click on the donate button right in the centre of the screen. It really is that simple. Puttingittogethercast.com, click on donate. It's right in the middle of the screen. And why not make it a monthly donation and think of it as buying me a wee cup of coffee for all those podcasts that you've enjoyed. If you can't afford it right now or it doesn't suit for any reason, then that's okay. Keep enjoying the show, uh, dig back into the archives and enjoy and particularly enjoy this week's episode, which is a, a tribute to the late, great Stephen Sondheim, brought to you by Peter Forbes and me, and we are putting it together. It was quite a while ago. Had I just done? I think you the had first just run done of the, the show. run of follies, yeah, and then you went back. Yeah. So you did tell me about a little bit about it. Um, yes. But I want to go way back to the beginning. I want to go back to when did you first? Do you remember when you first heard something that was written by Stephen Sondheim? Did it have an impact on you? 
Oh my goodness. I think probably the first thing I was aware of was probably um I think probably hearing Judy Dench sing Send in the Clouds. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh probably on television. Actually no, I don't think it was Judy Dench. I think the first my first memory of it would be hearing Glynis Johns sing it. Ah yeah. On and I think she must have been interviewed on Parkinson or something. And she sang um Send in the Clowns and I'd never quite heard anything like she it. She had a remarkable um, quality, didn't she? She did, because she didn't really sing it. I mean, it was a bit, you know, in the mould of Rex Harrison, I suppose, that yep. sort of speak singing, um, Sprechgesang, or yeah, whatever they call the it one, in yeah. German. And um, and I suppose the impact, thinking back now, was, wow, this sounds amazing, and what an amazing performance. But also that sense of somebody really acting a song, yes. which I think is the key, well, to all musical theatre, um, singing, really, but particularly, it, and it, it, it was taken to a new level, really, by Stephen Sondheim. Yes. Um, because his priority was always the character. Yeah, and actors who could sing a bit rather than, than singers who could act a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think he loved a glorious voice, quite clearly. Um, there were lots of wonderful uh performers who were great singers who who worked with him directly and on his shows but I think also he had a, a huge appreciation for the skills that actors with a, a musical sensibility brought to his yeah his songs and the characters because it was all about communicating the character and he wasn't as I, as far as I understand it overly precious about you know oh that's got to be in that key because that's how I wrote it yes you know if the if the actor was right and the characterization was right he was quite happy to you know shift things into a slightly different kind of voice and so on um yeah I heard a clip last night of um who was it working with him I can't remember what actor it was saying that oh I think I've got that wrong um that mm-hmm. note on the way up or the way down mm-hmm. or something and mm-hmm. he said, "Well, you know what? It doesn't bug me." He said, "As long as yeah. as long as there's not extra emphasis on it, because it's not an important yes. moment, then sing whatever yeah. note brings you to you know where you need to go." And I thought yeah. I was surprised by that because I didn't know that. About I think him. he was much more uh, rigorous about lyrics. I'm um, sure he would be. Yeah. I mean, he did. He, one of the things he said to me when <laughs> when he first saw me doing Buddy was, um, he said, "It's I've got, not I got." Oh. And um. I went, oh, right, okay. And I think I continued to get it wrong <gasps> quite regularly. But he was, he was, you know, he would pick up those kind of tiny lyrical details um, all the time. But I think um, I think you're right. I think as long as people are, are not murdering the song, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are, there are mistakes you can make that obviously, as he saw it, didn't detract from the overall impact and the overall sense of a, a number. Um, but then there were probably other performances that took more liabilities musically that he probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have approved of. Yeah. I, would have I think the but, bigger the um, star, sometimes the more that they can take, you know, liberty maybe, with it. Maybe, yeah. I mean, when you, yeah. when you hear the old cast recordings and then when you see the sheet music, sometimes you're surprised. You go, wait a minute, is this yes, the same exactly, song? Yes, exactly, yeah. You know? Yes. Well, that's often, I think sometimes that's also because, well, the, the, sometimes it's a question of interpretation and sometimes it's a question of the cast recordings tend to be done very quickly. Very quickly. Because they're yeah. very expensive to make and quite difficult to, to make your money back on. So, because we did a cast recording of Follies and um, it was very rushed in the studio. Yeah. I mean, it sounds great because we had, we literally did it the day after we finished the run. Right. 
um, or the, the the two or three days immediately afterwards. So it was absolutely in people's bones. Do you know what I mean? In terms of the performance, mm-hmm. but taking it into a, a very alien environment like a recording studio, which is alien for most of us who are predominantly actors rather than singers um, or musicians. Mm. Um, did put a lot of pressure on and there was a lot of pressure on the orchestra to, you know, the orchestra recorded the whole thing in very little time at all. Amazing. But they were such superlative musicians. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you wouldn't know it. I mean, it does sound, my favourite thing about the cast recording is hearing that or being able to hear that orchestra again. Um, It's the real thing and they're all playing together. I mean, it's a live thing really, isn't it? It is a live thing, yeah. Um, and those amazing orchestrations, you know, of Jonathan Tunick's and, and all that. Um, yeah, one wonders what, what might have happened if it weren't for Jonathan Tunick, you know, or how, I'd love to know more well, about Well, I guess he would have found a different arranger, but mm. yeah, I would too. And, um, and you know, I was very lucky to meet Jonathan as well because he came to the band calls oh, cool. and uh, he was there for the sits probe and um, he was there for the first couple of previews as was Stephen and um, yeah that was that was extraordinary to watch him work with the musical supervisor and the and the MD mm-hmm. and the and the orchestra you know his appreciation for the playing in places you know he would listen to uh, the orchestra play something through and, and I remember him <laughs> looking after um, they'd played Losing My Mind he just looked across at, at Mikey Davis, who was lead uh, reed player, um, who played the alto sax solo on it, and he just sort of nodded and said, thank you, oh, wow. <laughs> and then gave his notes. That's amazing. And I thought that was such a lovely touch, you know, From and also because he was, he was a woodwind player himself. He was a right. reed player. Is that that kind of obligato bit where she's like, da 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's... It just makes the whole thing, and um, and Mikey's an extraordinary player, um, and I think they'd he was in the orchestra for Gypsy as well, so so Jonathan knew him from then. But but there's just that moment of recognition of a, of a beautifully played um, yeah. aspect of of that number from one player, and then he would give you know very tiny detailed notes in terms of the orchestration and maybe rewrite the odd bit here and there on the on the hoof, you know, just add in a you know, a, a held note on a cello on, on a particular bar uh, um, or a couple of notes on the harp or, you know, it was fascinating to watch. Wow. Um, and I was I was very lucky to be able to see that because I was, um, my son Ewan, who's now studying uh, bass at uh, ICMP <laughs> in London, I took him in for the last band call before the sits probe and um, we, we sat and listened and, and uh, Nigel Lilly, the MD, made him go and sit next to the double bass player. <laughs> Perfect. So he was in there in amongst the double bass and the drums and the and the uh, piano, and watching from a musician's point of view, you know, um, a, a fantastic conductor conducting a wonderful orchestra with the original orchestrator sat there, you know, turning the pages, following the score and making little tweaks. And uh, I mean, what an amazing gift for him, you know. Um, at the time, he was about seventeen, um, and thinking about you know becoming a musician. Amazing. So, you know that was an extraordinary gift to be able to give him. But um, yeah, it was so. It was, you know, you don't come across that, that level of skill combined with experience combined with talent mm. that often. You know, um, Jonathan's a little bit younger, I think, than than Stephen was. But um, you know you're so aware that you're in the presence of a lifetime of innovative groundbreaking 
uh, experience and, and work, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's world It's incredibly class. humbling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, yeah. it's, it's not very often. I mean, the, the, the scene you've just described of, of your son being there and, and amongst it all with all those people in that room, how many times in your life do you, for you or for him, have anything close yeah. to that experience? It's extraordinary, no. isn't it? No, it is really special, really precious. Um, and, uh, you know, I I just felt this week hearing the news about Stephen's passing, you know, I just thought, my God, I was so lucky to experience that. Yes, yeah, one of the few lucky people like that, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's it's something you don't take lightly, you know, it's it stays with you. Definitely. I think as I get mm. a wee bit older, I, I'm able to have those experiences and just sit in them. And not think, yes. oh, oh, it's slipping away, or oh, I wish this would last forever. Yeah. Just to go, wow, this is cool. Just to appreciate. Yeah, and it's it. very. It would be very easy to be completely overawed by it. Yeah, and, you know, and miss the whole up thing. And singing in front of those people, and you kind of, oh my god, I, I, if I, I don't want to screw this yeah. up, and if you're just thinking, I don't want to screw it up, you're not really doing what you're meant to be doing, which is channeling, you know, that character in that moment and in that in that song or in that that bit of script mm. and with Sondheim's work you know because he's such a great lyricist and a composer um, it, it, he, the songs really embody the characters and a lot of the emotional life of the characters is in those songs and in that music um, and of course that should always be the case I suppose in, in musical theatre but it always fascinated me that he never wrote the book for anything yeah Um because I think he was such a great wordsmith and he seemed to understand character so completely to be able to write th those lyrics and to write in the voices of those characters. Mm. Um, but he always credited the book writers. I mean, when we were doing Follies, one of the things, the second time we did it in 2019, he came again. So, you know, we were very lucky to, to get to meet him twice. Mm. And, um, and I was having a chat with him afterwards and, uh, he was very, I mean, he, I think he was, people said he was a great audience because you could always hear him laughing. Hmm. He had a quite a loud laugh. And he also, he said himself, you know, that he cried very easily. Um, and he was quite tearful, you know, and, and quite moved by seeing the show again. Hmm. And uh, I said to him, you know, it's great that you've come back to see it again. And, and uh, he said, oh, it's just, it's just wonderful. It's a great, you know, realization of the whole thing. And he said, I, one of the things he said was, I've, it, I've never really understood the characters until I saw this production. What? Amazing. You think, well, that's weird because, and because he said, you know, they're not my characters. They're Jimmy Goldman's characters. <laughs> but he and then he sort, of, he sort of, I know, but he sort of welled up and, and he said, I just wish Jimmy could be here to see this. And um, and he he was very moved by that, you know. That so he obviously felt. I mean, he he was so aware that it was. I mean, we all lionize him, but everything he did was a collaboration, and that's what was so great about it was yeah. that he was able to take those characters and those stories, and um, along with um, the writer of the book was able to, you know, take those characters to certain emotional heights. Um, yeah. That that otherwise you know would be difficult to achieve just in in prose. So it, so I think I just it's it fascinates me that he never sat down and wrote a play. You know, even an adaptation really. 
Yeah, because um, I'm sure he would something. have been capable. You can only assume he would You'd have been capable. You'd think so, wouldn't but you? As, as has been yeah. said many times, and by him as well, that he ultimately was a collaborator, in it, as you said. Yeah. So I think it, yeah. it must be something to do with that. I saw a, yeah. was a great um, interview with him with another composer. It was a series where writers met writers who had influenced them and they interviewed them and things. It's a YouTube thing. Um, and I can't remember who it was, but anyway. He's, it wasn't Bernstein, was it? Uh, no, it wasn't because it was someone who had no. who had been influenced by Sondheim, if you know what I mean. Oh right, <coughs> someone okay. younger. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he went to his house and he looked through all sorts of manuscripts and fascinating stuff. Yeah. And he s- said, you know, if I had to do this on my own, I would go mad. Like I would, mm-hmm. I would never want to do that. I don't understand how people mm. can do that. For me, it's a back and forth. It's a collaborative art. Yeah. And that's how, I mean, musical theatre is right. the ultimate collaborative art, isn't it? It is, and also I think you know certainly when I read the the book about um, there's a book about the the rehearsal process for Follies, which was written by a guy who was an intern um, wow. on on their staff, and it's a brilliant read. Um, and it, he talks about how Sondheim would just you know they discuss something, discuss a song, and it might they give it a go and try and do something with it and choreograph and blah, blah, and it wouldn't be working. So that he would go away and come in the next day with a completely new song, yeah, and say, well, what about this? You know. And they'd have a look at that and do that, and then he'd say, "Well, if you don't like that, what about this?" And he just <laughs> had, he had all these amazing ideas. But I think they came from, as you say, the cut and thrust and the back and forth of a collaborative, creative process. Yeah, you know being that, forced that the to fact do it. that yeah, 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 being pushed into areas that maybe you wouldn't think of for yourself, yep. but that actually then spark off something else. That, that somebody else takes and runs with. And I think he really loved that, as far as I can tell. You know, I mean, it, it, I, I know what he means. If, you know, the idea of having to create all of it on your own in a room would be, would could send you back. I think so. You know? I mean, there are some people who do that. There are people, and I think might have been you and I were talking about Bennett, I think, when you were doing his play a few years back, saying he does tend to sort of deliver a, a, a rehearsal draft and just sort of plunk it on the table, apparently. And I can't get my head around that because I do a, a zero draft. I call it a zero draft because I know it's going. I'm allowed to make it shite. Yes. And then immediately send it to somebody and prepare for them yeah. to rip it apart. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, the classic for me of that I've worked with was Alan Akebourne, who, you know, turns sends you a script, mm. um, which is kind of flawless. <laughs> yeah. And you think, well, I wonder which draft this is, and and actually, it's probably essentially the first draft because he always said when he was constructing a play it would take him a year to, to, to write a play but only two weeks of that or three weeks of that was actually sitting down and writing yeah yeah the rest of it was going for walks on the beach in Scarborough and um you know reading and and watching things and and he would have one main idea in his head at the beginning of the year about the next play he was going to write and then he would think of other ideas and subplots and so on. And eventually some of those subplots would rise up into the foreground yeah. and the original idea would end up being a kind of offstage side plot somewhere. <laughs> yes. um, and, and, but by the time he sat down to write, he knew exactly what happened. Every beat of the play was in his head. And so he knew that on page 46, a certain thing would happen. Mm-hmm. But he hadn't written the dialogue because he said that's the fun bit. And so I, he would he would have created the characters in his head, created the whole structure, the narrative, um, you know, whatever. 
he'd know where all the big laughs were, but he would he would then sit down and just have fun mm-hmm. writing those characters and and concentrating on giving each of them a very individual voice. Because he always said, you, you know, I want people to be able to cover up the character names at the side of the page and tell who's talking by how they're expressing themselves. Well, that, that's, yeah, that's good dialogue writing for sure. Yeah, and but he, that's the bit that he loved to do, you know, and so he would he would sit down and have a lot of fun with that. So by the time it had, you know, come out the end of his typewriter initially or his word processor or his computer, it was, you know, it was so... Um, flawlessly constructed that there was hardly any tweaking of course he would then direct the play as well so but in all the times I worked with him I I can only remember once having rewrites really uh, on a play and that was because Michael Billington from The Guardian who wasn't reviewing it because they had a regional reviewer scheme but he was a great uh, friend and champion of Alan's and he came to see the show and uh, they had dinner afterwards and because of one or two things that Michael said the next day Alan came in and gave us a few cuts and rewrites but that was the only time I ever experienced that but had it been a so new play? so people work in very different it was a brand new play right, yeah right, right. Um, and uh and actually, it was no. It, it it ended up not being one of his great plays, but it was. It was you know even his his not so good ones are pretty blooming good. Mm. But um, you know he's a great craftsman. But all that happens inside his head. Amazing. You know it's isn't not it? back and forth. Once he gets in the rehearsal room as a director, there's a lot of back and forth. But um, the, essentially, the piece itself is is a is a solo you know solo operation. It, which I find, you know, people are so different. That's what I love about what we do, you know. Yeah. That when you meet really creative people, um, like writers and composers, you just think, how on earth <laughs> do you do it like that when that person over there does it completely differently and that there doesn't seem to be one way of doing it. You know, that's what keeps it fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, like, the, the joy of this podcast is that I'm talking to people and hearing about all that stuff and you know mm. every time I get to the end of one of these conversations I've got a new sort of angle on the whole thing yeah, yeah. and it does make you feel okay about your own practice because you go okay so everyone does it yeah well you're different. an incredibly creative person you know I'm I'm not really I mean I I, <laughs> I doubt that. I, I love I love being an actor but I I wouldn't know where to start to sit down and write something mm. I mean I've rewritten things and I've I've helped to edit things but I I've never come up with an original idea and followed it through and created a piece of work you know I think my um my skill set is more in in interpreting and actually the more collaborative side of once you get something you know get uh, what I love is getting a group of actors when a group of actors get together mm. um and I think writers enjoy good writers enjoy this as well is that when they first hear it out loud it's often a very moving experience for a writer yeah. because they have spent all that time in their you know iconic garret <laughs> or their shed at the bottom of the garden or whatever on their own thinking does this work does this work I don't know if it works or not you know doubting themselves uh, um, as a lot of them say they do all the way through the process and then they hear a group of actors bring it to life for the first time off the page and it's I've you know I've witnessed writers breaking down in tears because yeah me too they're just so the release of that and the the sense that oh thank goodness it's out there now you know yeah and it sounds amazing even now um i remember i did a production of um the widows of clive up in dundee back in oh dear before the flood brian uh, <laughs> 1985 <laughs> and that antediluvian dundee rep um and 
it was it was a joyous experience. It was my I think second job, um, having spent a year in rep somewhere else, and I and I um, turned up for the read through quite nervous. You know, lots of very um, iconic Scottish actresses <laughs> in the room, yep. and because um, uh, there's a lot of women in the play, and uh, Donald Campbell, who had written it, was there for the read through, and we read the play, and. Um, uh, Lauren Boswell was directing it actually, and cool. he turned to um, yeah, turned to Donald, and said, "Well, Donald, would you like to say anything?" And Donald reached into his briefcase, and pulled out a sheaf of papers, and said, "Well, he said it's very interesting. He said I um, he said I haven't seen this play since the original Traverse Theatre production in the back in the seventies, mm. and he said um." Except I've seen one or two not very good productions of it, he said. Um, and I was a bit worried that actually the play was the problem and that um, it it just didn't, it, it, it wouldn't work. And I was anxious about that. So he said, I've brought along this. And he waved this sheaf of papers. He said, I've made some rewrites. <laughs> but he said, having heard you read the play... He said, "We don't need this. <laughs> the play's fine." He said, "He said you've you you've you've made it work for me, so I'm just going to throw these away." Ah, oh, you've restored and his he faith. Did. He just chucked them away. Yeah, yeah restored his faith in the play because it had been through s- several hands that maybe hadn't taken sufficient care of it, you know. And um, and it was a room full of wonderful actors, you know. There were some wonderful um, actors in it, Anne Louise Ross and. Um, Annie Myatt and um, I can't remember who else was in it. I'm getting too old. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, there was a brilliant cast, brilliant cast of uh, of, of actresses, and uh, it was just you know it worked. The play worked. But the play was so, robust enough to withstand. It was what had happened to it, it previously, was. which is good yeah, writing. Isn't exactly. It? Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was nice. How amazing! Now take me back a wee bit mm. to to Sondheim and tell me. Uh-huh. Were you? Did you have cast recordings when you were younger that you listened to over and over? Did you go and see shows? Like how? What, how did he? His work influenced your your young life when you were coming up? And well, you know, I, it seems odd to say it. I don't know that it did. I think I was occasionally aware of him. Mm. I was. I knew that he was. You know, a, a, an important figure. Um, I think I saw a production of A Little Night Music at the National Theatre. Uh, which had uh, Sean Phillips and Judy Dench and uh, various other people in it, um, and I enjoyed that. I was aware of Sweeney Todd. Mm. I'm not quite sure how. I think just from hearing, but I'm not an expert on him by any stretch of the imagination. You know, my my uh, acting life has predominantly been spent doing plays. Yeah. So I was obsessed early on with Shakespeare and Arthur Miller and. Um, uh, and Ibsen and Chekhov and all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose whenever I came in contact with Sondheim, it didn't feel terribly foreign because actually he was steeped in those influences as well. So his work didn't feel terribly foreign to me when I when I came across it because I think um, he was also steeped in in those kind of influences. Um, you know, and I mean that's the, the amazing thing about him was his ability to draw on such a wide range of influences and material to in order to uh well for a start a lot of his his work was was um adaptations of previous plays or 
or stories or whatever, or certainly styles of plays. You know, if you think of yeah. anything happened on the mm-hmm. way to the Forum, you know, it's a sort of classic Roman comedy. Um, and he was so he was highly um, educated yeah. in in literature and um, and international, particularly European literature. And he was able to draw on all that stuff and pastiche it and Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, allude to it kind of tangentially in in his writing. But at the heart of it all was always a kind of laser-like focus on what it is to be a human being in a particular moment, you know. And and so it's, so it's, it's really about the yeah, humanity of it right. and that's right. true of any great playwright and it's true of any great artist really isn't it to be able to see i mean that's i suppose that's what sunday in the park with george is is a moment mm. in time frozen on a canvas and and the sort of um the connections mm, yeah. the web-like connections leading to that moment and leading from that moment you know over generations um and his fascination yes. with a piece of art as a, a record of a moment in time, a moment in somebody's life, a moment in a relationship. Um, you know, I think that's that's kind of what speaks mm-hmm. to me about it. And, you know, doing Follies was, I was very aware of that sense of, I mean, the distillation of this in Follies, I think, was the One More Kiss where you have the elderly uh, opera singer and the mm-hmm. young version of herself singing a duet together with one voice, and one is one is very aware of the end coming. That's right. To yeah. The end of her life coming, and the the young one is all full of potential and hope, and the point at which those two meet mm-hmm. on that night, that reunion in that uh, derelict theatre, which is about to be destroyed and demolished. You know the poignancy of that. I think that was something that that he recognised in the human condition is that we're always at a point where we're looking back and we're looking forward, and everything is distilled in that moment. For sure. um, and I think that's you know that's that's why he speaks to so many people. And the other thing that I was very aware of when we were we were doing the show was you know some people thought oh this will appeal more to an older audience because it's about older people looking back but what was wonderful was how much it moved both young people and older people because they're both looking at the same thing from the opposite end just as the characters really? are in in the show you know and 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 younger audiences i think found that very moving yeah, yeah, the yeah. idea of the younger versions of the characters seeing what had become of themselves and trying to imagine you know how that had happened how could that yeah. moment of potential that moment of being in love that moment of you know feeling your life was over before it had even begun how that then um diffuses through the rest of their lives i just i just thought that was fascinating you know i think that was the real strength of the storytelling but that seems to be a uh, a theme that comes up again and again mm. in his work is this kind of well there's aging isn't yeah. there and there's there's getting older and there's um growing yeah. up and then there's taking one road when you could have taken another and what would have happened and the road you didn't take you know, it comes up again and again which yes. i love like it's complex and and varied in terms of uh, you know back, backdrops and characters but ultimately you, you watch a writer wrestle with 
the same mm-hmm. ideas yeah. over and over. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think w- one really extraordinary thing he said to me that, that he came, when he came to see the first preview, and I was sitting in the bar with him afterwards, and I think I told you this before, for some reason, nobody else came anywhere near us. So I was with him for about 40 minutes on my own thinking, I can't believe this has just happened. <laughs> Wonderful. But um, we were talking about all sorts of different things. And, and one of the things he said about um, Buddy's big sort of book number, well, in Follies we talked about the book numbers, which are the numbers that come out of the scenes and that are about the characters um, in the moment. Mm-hmm. And then there are the, the sort of pastiche numbers, which are um, numbers from the shows. Sure. And um, he said in The Right Girl... Um, where Buddy is trying to is wrestling with whether or not he's with the right girl. You know, he's been married to Sally for seventeen years or whatever it is, and it's all gone horribly wrong. He's got this other relationship going because he's a travelling salesman. He's got another relationship um, in Des Moines, and 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 that's um, with uh, a girl called Margie. Uh, which is a very different kind of relationship. But he's sort of trying to construct the relationship he wants to have with Sally, with this other girl. It's all very complicated. But there are sections in the number mm-hmm. where he he comes out of the, the turmoil of the moment and is suddenly talking to Margie, who's this sort of idealised girlfriend. Um, and uh, he talks about home. And um, Stephen said to me, he said, the most important word in the whole number is home. And I said, all right. And he mm. said, because if you've never had one, and he started, <laughs> a tear started to um, form in his eyes. Oh, and goodness. and then he, he mm. sort of stopped talking. And I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know, it's sort of amateur psychology, but I think he was, you know, it's very well documented by him, apart from anybody else, that he and his mother had a very difficult relationship and that he spent a lot of time with yes. um, Oscar Hammerstein's family which is how he became a you know a, a composer but um mm-hmm. but i i got the sense that you know his whole life had been a kind of attempt to find home and i think a lot of yeah. his characters um are on that journey and questioning whether they've the home they're in is the one that they really want or or whether there's another home somewhere that's that's the one that that they really want um and uh, you know all of those characters going into the woods they're all going off in search of something that will make sense of their lives to bring them home you know of course and and I think that's that was a really strong theme in his work but also I suspect maybe quite a strong motivating factor you know that he was Mm -hmm. always uh, writing about people trying to make sense of their relationships Um, nowhere more clearly than company if you think about it Mean Absolutely, plainly, you know. yeah. Somebody sort of bouncing around like a like a ball in a in a pinball machine, trying to make sense of what it is to be a human being and have a relationship with another human being. Um, and I think he found that later in life, you know, and that, which is brilliant that he did. But uh, yeah, but it seemed to take a while. I think didn't it, it did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, he he wrote about people having those. Yes. Feelings, yeah, and, yeah, and so you can sort of see it as a working out of that, you know, inner turmoil about what it is to be in a relationship, and, and I think that might come, you know, play back into the whole thing of him being a very collaborative, creative artist. Mm. Is that, in a in a sense, his home was was in the rehearsal room with with 
um, yeah. people that he he could spark off and that uh, you know he could, there's a beautiful photograph that somebody posted online of him uh, reclining on a, a couch with um, it's a black and white photograph with Leonard Bernstein sitting at a desk in mm-hmm. the background and it's when they were working on West Side Story you know as young men in their twenties. And you think, God, that you know, those those relationships must have been so important to him. His relationships with the, with the people that he worked with. Um, but many of us, I think, do that. Yeah. You know, I, I can't. I'm not diagnosing you, but find our home and at work. Yeah. Because we spend so much time trying to get that work, yes. and then when we get it, we want to hang on to yeah. it. So it becomes life. It does. And it's life giving as yeah. well. It is. It is. Um, and I guess the challenge, what you've done and many, of course, have done is is to to have a a, a more what's the you know quotes normal home life as well, yes. and, tr- and maintain both. Yeah, which isn't but easy. I think as a young actor, yeah. what you do is you go, you do like you put everything into the job. Oh God, and, yes. and then when the job finishes, you go, oh, what, what do I, I do now? now? I've got, I haven't got any friends anymore. You know, what, yeah, I've got <laughs> no mates. I've left everything to rot on I the know, vine. Everything that I was know. outside. It's this funny theater. as you get older, you, that becomes less of a a worry and also mm. you kind of um you know that thing of everybody going out every night after the show you kind of go yeah. it's it's quite nice to have the excuse to say oh you know i'm getting on now i need to go and i'm just going to go <laughs> back and have road. a wee cup of tea or i'll have a glass of red wine and some cheese and biscuits okay. and just settle down in front of <laughs> news night and uh <laughs> you know that i mean that's a ridiculous but i do like to go out as well but it but you know that that thing of if I don't go out with the company after the show, does that mean I'm not as much a part of the company as I would be if I did? You know, that slight desperation yeah. that you have when you're young. Um, and I can remember oh, when I when I did out, my yeah. first job, but, you know, I was in, in rep and I was so busy. I was acting SM and doing everything, doing 70-odd-hour weeks. And, and actors <laughs> would come up from London, you know, to do a, a couple of shows. And when they got the chance, you know, they'd go back and uh, tend to their pot plants and their families and everything else. And I, I used to say to them, oh, "What are you doing the weekend?" They go, "Oh, I'm I'm going down to London." I go, "Why? Why are you going to London?" And you go, "It's all because here, I man. live there, and I've got a flat there, and I've got a partner, and I've got you know, I've got a dog, and I've got you know, or, or children or whatever." And and I go, "Yeah, but it's so much fun here. Why don't you stay here?" You know, <laughs> crazy. But um, I, do you remember when we were taking the James plays in Greenock, staying in that god awful hotel? <laughs> And we had we had about three or four days off. Some people chose to stay in the hotel. I know. And it, you know, it was it was touch and go for me. But I mean, I was only twenty miles from my house. Yes. And I said, no, Why, would yeah. Why would you? Why would you stay there? People, you know, they stayed and they had a wee weekend party. They did. I think I'm not yeah. disparaging yeah. it, but it proves that that's a real they thing. They didn't look like, particularly rested when we got back, though, Brian. Did they? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think they did. <laughs> ah, well, uh, you, know, you know, to be young and I all know. that. So uh, you sat with with Stephen for for about forty yeah, minutes in the bar that yeah. night. I love that no one else came because I think they were worried thought, oh, that he was giving possibly. me intense notes and that it, you know. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> but what was wonderful was, I mean, one of the wonderful things was he just wanted to know about me. You know, he, he was so curious about other people. Um, oh wow! And he just, you know, he wanted to find out what I, you know, why he'd not not seen me in anything before and and what I was what I had done and how had it come about that I was, you know, all of that and. Um, and then we discovered that um, Paul Kerrison, who used to run the Leicester Haymarket Theatre and who was a big Sondheim 
uh, fan and aficionado and did all of mm. Stephen's shows in Leicester, having already worked with them at the library in, Man- in Manchester um, as an assistant director, I think. Because uh, the, the library in Manchester was championing Stephen's shows, you know, long before a lot of the rest of the the British theatre establishment, really. Really? Yeah, yeah right. they, they were... I think they did the, the um, European premiere of... Uh, Pacific Overtures and um, wow. various other things. They did a they did a very well regarded you know production of Follies. They did. I mean, they did them all. Sweeney Todd and so on. And I saw a few of of them again when Paul did them in um, in Leicester. And uh, so we chatted quite a lot about Paul. And Stephen was very um, complimentary about Paul and Paul's approach to his work and and so on. So that was nice. Um, but yeah, no, it was amazing. And then the the second night, we, we uh, he came to the second preview, and Jonathan Tunick was there that night as well. So I ended up I don't know how this happened, but I ended up sitting at a table with Stephen Sondheim, Jonathan Tunick, Nick Skilbeck, a musical supervisor, and Nigel mm. Lilly, the musical director, and me. I was the sort of wow. musical ignoramus in the corner. <laughs> were they all talking about this, music? Well, they sort of were. And then they started playing this game. Nigel started. Uh, they did a sort of. Um, a quiz. <laughs> he started doing a quiz with them, and they got so competitive it was hilarious, because Jonathan knew all the answers, um, <laughs> and uh, Stephen thought he did, uh, and he did know mm-hmm. quite a lot of them. But there were one or two th- points where they almost came to blows over uh, the answer to something. And um, I remember, I just remember one point Stephen saying, "He always does this. He always knows." <laughs> He's just like an Amazing. encyclopedia of, um, you know, the great American songbook. Um, but yeah. But then he was well documented to be a, not Jonathan Tunick, but Sondheim was well known as a sort of a, a game. Yes, he loved games. Lover and puzzles. Yeah. I think that's so probably on. why Nigel did it. It was, you know, because he, he knew that he would mm-hmm. uh, he would really get into it. So that was, that was fun as well. Um, but it's hard not to kind of imagine that his love of games and, f- and finding, you know, piecing the puzzle mm. together has a connection to his writing. Oh, I mean, God, surely yeah. there's I'm sure. a correlation I'm there. sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of, you know, the, some of his shows are a bit like, you know, in terms of plot and in terms of the lyrics in some of the songs. It's like a it's like a complex um, mm. combination of Scrabble and a jigsaw. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah. <laughs> it, and, and yet, everything, every word is is apposite and the best possible word, you know, in that situation. Um, oh, yeah, everything exactly yeah. in its place, no question. Yeah. I mean, he said, uh, he was quoted, somebody quoted it recently, the the thing he said about West Side Story, somebody said, you know, oh, it amazing that you, that, you know, that was your first big show and the, the to have done the lyrics, and they're so brilliant. And he said, yeah, except there are still things in there that I think, why did you write that, you know? Why did you yeah, get Maria saying, too. it's alarming how charming I feel? He said, it wouldn't be out of place in a Noel Coward song, but <laughs> why give it to a Puerto Rican girl in, in New this York? This is what it is to be a young writer. Yeah, though. of course. Yes, and, and that's, I mean, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that what that is, is the unconscious bias, in a way, of the influence of all the stuff you've read you know, I think a lot mm. of writers and probably composers too talk about how you have to just keep writing until all the stuff that's derivative becomes mm-hmm. your own voice. You you start writing in your own voice. 
Yeah, till it all falls until away. Until it all falls away, because all those influences yeah. are incredibly important. But it's a bit like mm. we had an acting tutor at, at Br- the Bristol Vic School who used to say, technique is very important, and you must learn technique, and you must work hard on learning technique, and then you must forget that you ever had to learn it. Mm. Don't forget yeah, the technique, yeah. but forget the process of learning it, because if mm. you don't, it will show as technique. Whereas what it has to become... Yeah is part of your arsenal of skills and um, and techniques to be able to express yourself as accurately and um, creatively as possible. Mm, uh, yeah, but we're, you don't want to be showing your work. No, that's right. And we're all, you know, I'm sure we were all guilty in the early, and probably still are, some of us, Brian. <laughs> I include myself in that number. Of, <laughs> of You suddenly find yourself doing something and think, oh my God, it's like I'm doing an impersonation of, I don't know, Laurence Olivier oh, or absolutely. Richard Burton or something, you know. Um, yeah. I find myself doing impersonations of you. That's do you? Problem. Well, that, that's, <laughs> that, that's the last time I got fired. <laughs> somebody else we know who who's even more seriously afflicted by that condition. <laughs> But he shall remain nameless. Oh, how dare you. I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, so since you... Have you found that your relationship to, to his back catalogue has kind of shifted since you worked on Follies? Have you, yeah, have I've you certainly listened to, to more of it uh, with a with a different mm-hmm. kind of focus, I think. Um, uh, although they're quite... You know, they're not easy to just sit and listen to as you would listen to, I don't know, a symphony or a... Or a or a mm. or a jazz recording, whatever. They're they're they sort of come alive when they're they're embodied, you know, when they're staged. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, you listening listening to uh, what was I listening to yesterday? I listened to the whole of Sweeney Todd um, yesterday, and I just I love that. I mean, it's it's, amazing. it's an extraordinary yeah. thing. Um, and again, it's a classic example of there's so so many different influences in it. You know, there's there's that sort of almost Wagnerian quality to it. There's a Kurt Vile mm-hmm. quality to it. There's there's yeah. pastiches of English folk songs and sort of a, a sort of doffing of the cap to to John Gay. You know, who wrote the Beggars Opera and used those mm-hmm. um, those um, those airs that he heard on the street in London. You know, and and wove mm-hmm. them into this extraordinary thing. And it's got all of that, you know, in spades. And you sometimes think, my God, he's thrown so much into this, and yet, and what? And the high drama, and hugely well. high, high drama, drama and you know? and you know, all Grand Guignol and and black black humour, you know, dark dark mm. humour, um, amazing, really amazing. Um, I was listening to the original recording with Angela Lansbury and Len Cariou and um, she's she's fantastic. Huge, isn't oh, it? it's great! It's yeah. mad. And his yeah. voice, I mean, God, Tremendous. reminded me very much of Philip Quast actually, who played Ben in our production of Follies. Mm. Very yeah, similar yeah, tone and and vibrato to his voice. And uh, I think Philip must have played Sweeney. He must have done, um, and I'm sure he was yeah. fantastic. Um, but yeah. I'd love to do it, but I don't know if I've got the right voice. I think it's more for Tweedy. Yeah, it's more of a sort of deeper baritone. I think it's but, quite um, a low one, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, you have a high voice. But, yeah, I, I, yeah. So who knows? I saw Clive Rowe was what quoted else? the other day saying he'd love to do Sweeney, but you'd have to have it transposed because <laughs> he's got a very high. I mean, he's got an enormous range, Clive, but mm. um, but he's got a very high voice. Um, Everybody will be thinking about their ideal roles now. I, I think. think they will. You know, I mean, that's funny. There was a thing somebody was saying, 
you know, I've been following, there's been so much on social media, um, it's hard to avoid it, but um, somebody said, uh, there was a tweet that somebody put out saying, if you're a producer thinking of staging a major Sondheim musical next year to um, to sort of cash in on, please don't, please stage something by a new young composer because that's what he would want. Um, Absolutely, and that was the other yeah. aspect that's, so that's right. come out of a lot of these comments is that he was so encouraging to younger writers. Um, and everyone's saying, let's put on the whole Sondheim back catalogue at the National and stuff and everyone else going, no, no wait a minute, yeah. let's do the opposite of that. Yeah, exactly. You know? Well, I think you can do both, can't you? I mean, there should be, of course, of course yeah. there should be um, productions of his great works, but I think also it'd be wonderful to, to see them alongside some new some new writers, you yeah. know, that's that's the thing. That's one of the things um, that I think is is missing in this country a bit is real mm. support for writers of new musicals. You know, there are there oh, are little festivals yeah. here and there that people people have put together which are brilliant. You know, in terms of helping with the development of something. But what people need is to get their their work on. You know, and it can be mm. a labour of ten years to get from writing something to actually getting it on a stage and that's just not good enough you know i don't think it's fair no, it's i mean it's a, almost impossible to yeah. stick in that long yeah, exactly and what do you do to eat yeah because i think yeah i think that you know when andrew lloyd webber when his company took over uh, the st james's theater in in victoria uh, in london uh, and and he called it the other palace because of course he owns the mm-hmm. palace theater which is a big musical theater house and i think the idea was that that's what it would be for would be to you know get shows on i don't know how successful it's been i mean he's now given it up and it's been taken over by somebody else but you know that um musical theater in this country is a is a, a powerful force you know that there's a huge amount of it and people love to see it um but but for the most part it's it's reruns and jukebox it's jukebox and reruns yeah. of classics yeah yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. then the big long runners like Phantom and Les Mis. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but once in a while something pops up. I mean, Hades Town is a great. Oh example. yeah, yeah. You know, and Hamilton, of course. Yes, that's true. Um, but they came over really from America. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, Hades Town premiered at the National, but it was an American team who who wrote it. And, yeah, and directed it. Was an American it concept so. album before it yeah. was anything. So it's, it's amazing yeah, how many maybe that's the way it's amazing actually how many versions of that story have been told in musical theatre yes. either in opera or in musical theatre I know at least two or three other um, versions of that by musical mm-hmm. theatre composers and you think wow there's something about that that story of um, um, Orpheus and Eurydice that it that seems well that i think composers love because it's got a musical element to it yeah, anyway of course, yeah. but um but yeah it's a really strong strong story isn't it i mean that i i saw hades town at the national before it went because it opened there and then it went across to oh, america cool. so that was that was exciting i really enjoyed it um i love the music that's yeah. one of those ones i can put on and just let you know yeah listen to it over and over yeah. again and just it's so rich yeah it is so rich. it is yeah and great. but there's a depth and a richness to that storytelling you know mm. history there yeah which is probably why it keeps coming exactly up. you know the greek stuff is just so ripe yeah i mean i've just done a tour of um cat on hot tin roof tennessee williams and um all the way through that i was i was thinking 
God, there's some, there is something very Greek about this, you know, the succession story, the the family that's at war with itself yep. and all of that. Um, and of course, Arthur Miller and um, Eugene O'Neill draw heavily on on Greek, ancient Greek influences as well. Um, it's just so it's microcosmic. Yeah, so it? it's it's. I think it's very central to the um, the American uh, dramatic literature. Mm. canon you yeah. know it, uh, even more so probably than, than our own um, I mean there's a bit of it obviously in Shakespeare and so on and and various other things but um, it, it feels like that the, the, the American writers went directly to the Greeks for inspiration you know they did yeah. they did as you say I think they have more they seem to have more new th- musical theatre appearing mm. than we do uh, yeah, we get a lot of stuff over now, don't we? Yes, like I think it just I think tends to be stuff that's come over. Yeah, I suppose they have the off Broadway route, don't they? So things tend to open off Broadway, and then yeah. you know I remember when I was in New York with Black Watch, uh, in the Heights was on, and that had won um, all the Tonys the previous year. But prior to that, it had opened off Broadway. Um, Spring Awakening had opened off Broadway, mm-hmm. and then gone. And it that doesn't quite work in the same way here. I don't know why. I know when they brought Spring Awakening over, which I had seen in the States, um, they they decided to try and copy that model, which was to open it in a the closest thing they could think of to an off-Broadway setting, which was the Lyric Hammersmith, I think. Mm-hmm. And then they yeah. would bring it in. And I thought, hang on a minute, this is a show that's won seven Tony Awards. You don't, well, you don't need it? to do that, surely. They had to do that in order to get it on. They then won all the Tonys. Surely it comes here as a hit Broadway show and you just stick it in the West yeah. End. I couldn't quite understand the logic behind trying to take it in sort of round the back door, as it were. It just seemed a bit weird. Um, but also our, our equivalent of off-Broadway is actually mostly subsidised theatre, which is I a different so. thing again, isn't yeah. it? Our off-West End houses are essentially subsidised theatre, so... Yeah. That's different. Again, I think the hardest thing here is getting it from workshop stage to production. You know, whereas yeah, in America they do, they when they do a workshop, quite often I think they hire a company for the workshop, and the contract that they sign includes the first run of the show. Really? I think it does. Wow. Yeah. So you you're sort of guaranteed. So so they cast the workshops with that in mind, and the workshop is a is a part of a of a a well established process in mm. getting stuff on but um, here lots of stuff is done at workshop stage and, and never sees the light of day again wouldn't that be nice if that was part of your contract for a development yeah. a week development yeah. yeah you get the west end the first day yeah, exactly. um, I can't see it happening no, I can't see it happen. but um, <laughs> you know I'm sure it's it might, it, it's possible it depends I just uh, it, yeah it's it's hard isn't it just getting things from one level to the next um because Always, there's so yeah. much involved yeah. as well with with a musical, that, you know, mm. it's much more but expensive. People took chances to, on Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, yeah, which we must remember. Yes, exactly. You know? We wouldn't have yeah. that if people hadn't exactly. taken chances on some weird ideas. Yeah. yeah. Can you pick a favourite Sondheim song before we go? A favourite? Oh my lord! Or a current favourite? Current favourite. Um, well, when I was listening to Sweeney Todd, um, uh, "Pretty Women." Oh, just blew me it. away. It's fantastic. so good. I mean, that's his his ability to just switch from that sort of violent gothic revenge yeah. story into sublime 
romanticism. I mean, somebody said he. What was it? They said he he was a a romantic with a with a pragmatic view of the human condition or something. I mean, it, because he has mm-hmm. that 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 ability to really express the most high blown romantic feelings. Um, but also to see the absurdity and the banality and and of of day to day life, and the yeah, two sort of yeah. coexist. So I think such a gift. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for talking to Not me about at all. it and everything. Well, it's lovely to talk to you. Um, a joy to have you on the show. Thank again. you very much. It's been a wee while. I think the I was I <laughs> was one of the early ones, wasn't I? You were the early yeah, days. Yeah. Yeah. How many shows have you done now? Uh, we're rounding in on 250 Oh my god, that's extraordinary yeah. Brian One a week since for the last four years That's fantastic Yeah, really Still great. going Yeah, yeah thank yeah. you Well Thanks hopefully it won't it be too long before I see you in person That would be uh, good, it's better be to do it in nice. person anyway Yeah um, So very much, very much appreciated Thanks Peter Not at all, lovely to talk to you The nicest man in show business, always charming, always a delight and never a chore. It's Peter Forbes and thank you very much Peter for taking the time to chat to me and to share so so many little insights and, and uh, truths about your time spent with Stephen Sondheim. Amazing stuff. I can only, uh, well I suppose, I, I, I can't say I can only wish that would happen to me because it didn't. Although I did uh, go and see a Q&A that he gave in the Olivier Theatre um, and I didn't know it was on until the day that it was on, and I booked a ticket at the last minute, ran down there, and sat about ten rows from the front and just listened to him talk and answer questions. Um, and like I say, that morning I didn't know I was going to see that. So amazing, really. Um, but that was as close as I got to the great man. But through Peter, we all I think can feel that we got a little bit closer. So please remember, if you can afford to and you'd like to support the show, just go to puttingittogethercast.com and click on donate. It would be really appreciated if you could help us keep going. We're unfunded and we have been for all four years and we could use your help. Puttingittogethercast.com, click on donate. And that is all I'm giving you for this week. I'm looking forward to speaking to you next week with a brand new guest, a whole new episode. And until then, I hope that you'll stay safe and stay creative and keep smiling and look after yourself and have a gentle and a wonderful week. Cheerio now.